You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 41 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Ian Howe. In this episode, we are pleased to have both Lana Ruck and Ella Bodwin back on our show. Ella was on episode two and Lana was on episode 16. Since episode 37, Settlers of Cerruti with Dr. Shane Miller and Dr. Jesse Toon was such a hit, we wanted to have Ella and Lana return to the show to talk about some controversial topics with in paleoanthropology. Lana and Ella, thank you guys so much for agreeing to come back. How are you ladies doing this evening? We're doing great. Well, I, I can only speak for myself, but I'm doing great. Yeah, we're doing well. Today is impeachment day number two, second impeachment of Donald Trump. So I'm in a better mood than I have Ooh. been for the past few days. <laughs> that first impeachment, yes. What about the second impeachment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So that is what's going on in the contemporary United States right now. But just wanted to kick us back off with brief reintroductions about yourself. And uh, Ella, why don't you go first? What have you been up to since we last had you on so long ago? (laughs) Well, that is a great question. Obviously, the pandemic hit. So not a lot of in the field stuff has been going on. I talked to you guys right before I went into the field in 2019, I think. And that was a really fun experience. I was working more with the community of people up in and around Lake Tracana. Yeah. And other than that, just making memes and uh, hanging out in the human origins department, Smithsonian. Other than that, really not very much, to be honest. A lot of knitting other than that. Yeah. If you guys don't follow her on social media, she makes some fantastic <laughs> clothing and is selling it currently. So please go check it out. I'm excited. Is your next one going to be a Bigfoot one? Is that something you're willing to admit? Yeah. The next insane sweater I'm making is this huge like shag Bigfoot that I bit off more than I can chew uh, in creating. So we'll see how how I'll, I'll figure that one out. But it's it's quite fun. Yeah. It's, it's at Simple Homo Slapien. Is that the place to find you at? Yes. Simple Homo Slapien is my Instagram. And then at Ella underscore Bodwin is my Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Lana, how are things going for you amid the pandemic and since we last talked to you? It's also been pretty slow. So I'm still a PhD candidate at IU Bloomington. I haven't been able to collect my dissertation data because it's with human participants and it is not safe to do so. So I've been teaching quite a bit and I knit one really shitty hat because I tried to pick up knitting and it didn't really succeed for me. So I do love seeing successful knitters making amazing things, but I have made one hat (laughs) and that's what I've been up to. Incredible. The life of archaeologists when we're stuck at home. (laughs) Yeah, I guess technically I've played like hundreds of hours of Nintendo Switch. So that has taken over my life of oh, that counts. <laughs> Excellent. So just a brief explanation for why we're having Ella and Lana on the show tonight to talk about controversial topics within paleoanthropology is that both Ella and Lana, if you haven't listened to their episodes before, work at very famous 
paleoanthropological sites in Africa. So Ella cut her teeth at Kubifora, whereas Lana earned her stripes at Olduvai Gorge. And like I said, both of these site complexes have produced some of the most groundbreaking discoveries in our understanding of human evolution. And something that we want to talk about is kind of this trope outside of paleoanthropology that people, when they talk about paleoanthropology, is that like the discipline of human evolution has these like cult of personalities. So I just kind of wanted to briefly talk about with you guys and, and what you guys think about that trope that the rest of us have about what goes on in paleoanthropology? Yeah, of course. I feel like if, if you don't mind, I'll jump in here. I feel like paleoanthropology, at least in my experience, more than any other archaeological sub-discipline, has these people who most of their research is so driven by who they are and the kind of people that they are. And I feel like we can, obviously it didn't necessarily start with the Leakies, but the Leakies are a great example of these cult figures in paleoanthropology who have some of the most, most discoveries, but then also had very interesting personality types. I feel like, like Mary Leakey, has a lot of very interesting stories about her and how she would act at field sites. And I remember one, I don't even know is true, that she shot a windmill once with a like a rifle. That kind of vibe of person, I feel like, is is pretty common in paleo. Yeah, we have an old Mary Leakey cigar butt that is just hanging in an artifact bag in one of the labs, just like an artifact of Mary Leakey, you know? <laughs> That's incredible. It is. It's... I, I would also agree with that, that there's just a certain amount of like ballsiness and and animatedness that comes with a lot of the premier scientists in this field. And it's good because it, it gets the field a lot of attention and people learn about what's going on <laughs> with the fossil discoveries and stuff. But it is also kind of a people are always trying to find the next oldest thing or going to find something older than you or time will tell who's going to win this race that is totally arbitrary. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's such a blessing and a curse. Totally. There's a really good video by John Marks. It's like five minutes long on YouTube. And it was recorded after one of the anthropological, the biological anthropology meetings where he talks about like how the study of humanity itself kind of breeds this obsession that we don't have, for instance, about fruit flies or, you know, frogs or physics or things like that. So I would recommend that for anybody interested. It's like you could probably just YouTube John Mark's Human Evolution or something. Yeah. And I I think also what's interesting about the kind of what happens when we have these cult personalities is just the fact of the fights that happen yeah. and the controversies within within our discipline is is very interesting. I mean, I feel like a lot of people have been re- like watching Bridgerton on Netflix and there's one character, like I can't remember most of it, but there, there was one character <laughs> who like writes these scandalous letters about the like drama going on in the society at the time. And I feel like a lot of the replies to different articles in paleo are very similar. Like they're very snarky. A lot of these different replies to one another and it's quite entertaining. Yeah. Agreed. I was going to ask you, do you think it's because this kind of cult personality and, and the intenseness of the, the arguments you guys have in paleoanth is because the world is kind of paying attention to this stuff. Cause I don't, I don't feel in like most archeology span fields that like people are like paying attention to, you know, this is the oldest plane site or, you know, something like that. But I think these names like the leakies and things like that, they, they get propelled to like national 
yeah. national news, you know, Lee Berger and things like that. Do you think that's kind of part of it is that you guys are like discovering our origins and then you guys, the, the paleoanth community kind of gets put into that larger sphere? I think it's kind of complicated in that I think people have realized one of the ways to get money and get funding for sites can be through being the person who finds the things, you know what I mean? That isn't not, it's not just about the science. It is about who you are as a person and finding funders in that way. And I think that paleoanthropology has a pretty good, obviously, you know, you still apply to NSF and you get like completely merit-based grants. But I think at the same time, there is a world where when people pay more attention to you and therefore your discoveries, you do have a tendency to get more money, more funding, more resources to go find more. And at least that's kind of my perception of it. I also think, like Lana said, like human evolution, everyone feels as though they have an equal stake in it, Mm -hmm. even though that might not necessarily be the case, right? Because we obviously have people who actively live by sites, but I can feel as quote unquote connected to our human origins as someone across the world, right? Because it's our human origins. So I do feel like, just like you said, Lana, it, it, it's a connector for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I really like that you brought up the funding angle. And I think like, I'm also really glad that Connor brought up that it does, it's more plugged into the media cycle in terms of like Scientific American coverage or nature or discovery or National Geographic writing more about like paleoanthropology topics more often than other archaeology or anthropology. And in terms of like the content, like the the cult of personality like definitely drives maybe the, the temperature of the narrative, if that's a good phrase. But the actual content itself, you know, when you're working with really limited samples and they're really difficult to find because preservation is such that, you know, you might only have, you know, like at Old Divide, the entire history there, there are only 80 hominin fossils. And so everybody says, don't go to Old Divide if you want to find a hominin, go there for stone tools. But like the amount of effort they Mm -hmm. have to put into discovering the finds and the fact that there isn't a lot of available data to like mitigate arguments about how to interpret things, right? Like our sample sizes really are at the end of the day quite limited, which opens it up for principled debate and also all the flavors that come on top of that actually scientifically principled debate about what is the significance of this finder interpretation or stuff like that. Truly an incredible point. Yeah. So it's there. It's a perfect storm. It's totally a perfect storm. And I enjoy that part of the field. But being in my other discipline where things are a little bit less heated, I also enjoy that. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, I do feel like I fit in into as much as I, I kind of say that with a little bit of self-deprecation as well. I do feel like I fit in quite a lot with a lot of paleo people in a way that probably isn't great, but it's just that, you know, loud, adventurous in a way that incredibly fun and yeah, very energizing group of people, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I'm, I think I have at times, you know, I'm just like, I totally have some of the, like, what we would say is like negative attributes of some of the really, really, really high profile, famous people. Like, I'm a little bit self-obsessed with my career and I'm a little bit narcissistic and all of us are kind of like that. Truly, we are all all of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, 
part of solving the problem is saying it out loud. <laughs> so yeah, but it, it's a really fun field to be a part of. And it's really exciting when new things happen and when you try and hash them out and, and figure them out and, and make new other discoveries along the way. And speaking of new discoveries and trying to figure them out, let's get into tonight's topic, which is the Lamequi. Did I say that right? Lana was yelling at me earlier. The Lamequi 2 and the Lamequi tools, which came out in a, in a Nature article not too long ago. So let's go ahead. We'll give you guys a brief intro to what we're talking about tonight. I hate you. Take it away, David. Why? Oh my God. I'm down. Okay, guys. If you've listened to the show or followed me, you know I'm illiterate, so just bear with me. Lomekvi is three. It's the name of an archaeological site in Kenya where ancient stone tools have been discovered, dating to 3.3 million years ago, which makes them the oldest ever found. In July 2011, a team of archaeologists led by Sonia Harmond and Jason Lewis of Stony Brook University, United States, shout out Long Island, were heading to a site near Kenya's Lake Turkana near Kenyanthropus Plachyops fossils had previously been found. The group made a wrong turn on the way and ended up at a previously unexplored region and decided to do some surveying. They quickly found some stone artifacts on the site, which they named Lomekvi 3. A year later, they returned to the site for a full excavation. Harman presented her findings at the annual meeting of Paleoanthropology Society on April 14th, 2015, and published the full announcement and results on the cover of Nature on May 21st, 2015. Around 20 well-preserved artifacts have been dug up at Lomekwi 3, including anvils, cores, and flakes. An additional 130 artifacts were found on or near the surface. In one instance, Harmon's team was able to match a flake to its core, suggesting that a hominin had made and discarded the tool at the site. The tools were generally quite large, larger than the oldest known stone tools recovered in the Gona area of the Afar region of Ethiopia in 1992. The largest weighs 15 kilograms and may have been used as an anvil. According to Harmond, it appeared that the toolmakers had purposely selected large heavy blocks of strong stone, ignoring smaller blocks of the same material found in the area. She ruled out the possibility that the stone tools were actually natural rock formations, saying the artifacts were clearly napped and not the result of accidental fracture of rocks. Analysis suggested the cores had been rotated as flakes were struck off. The purpose of the tools found at Lomequi 3 is unclear as animal bones found at the site do not bear any sign of hominin activity. This is the greatest expression of the late Negocene technology in human evolutionary history. Based on the artifact's stratigraphic position in undisturbed sediment relative to two layers of volcanic ash and no known magnetic reversals, Harmond and her team dated the tools to 3.3 million years ago. The finds of Lomekwi therefore represent the oldest stone tools ever discovered, predating the Gona tools by 700,000 years. The date predates the genus Homo by 500,000 years, suggesting this toolmaking was undertaken by Australopithecus or Kenyanthropus, which was found near Lomekwi 3. Previously, evidence of stone tool use by Australopithecus has been suggested on the basis of marks on animal bones, but those findings have been hotly debated, with no scientific consensus forming on either side of the debate. Harmon said that... The Lomekwi 3 artifacts do not fit into the Old Awan toolmaking tradition and should be considered part of a distinct tradition, which she termed 
the Lamequian. It has been hypothesized that toolmaking may have aided in the evolution of Homo into a distinct genus. However, it is unclear whether the Lamequian tools are related to those made by Homo species. It is possible the technology was forgotten and later rediscovered. Independent researchers who have seen the tools are generally supportive of Harmon's conclusions. George Washington University's anthropologist Allison Brooks said the tools, quote, could not have been created by natural forces, end quote. The dating evidence is fairly solid. Rick Potts, head of the Human Origins Program at the Smithsonian Institution, said the tools represented a more primitive style than known human-made tools, but something more sophisticated than what modern chimpanzees do. Open quote, there's no doubt it's purposeful tool making, end quote, he remarked. Paleoanthropologist Zerezne Alamzeged, I totally butchered that name, and I apologize if you listen, who is responsible for the earlier research suggesting Australopithecus had made tools, also backed Harmon's conclusions. So with that, we are talking about the Lamequian tool tradition, and we will be right back with Lana and Ella's thoughts and background on what they believe Lamequian could possibly be in terms of the evolution of our species. Welcome back to segment two of episode 41 of a Life in Ruins podcast. If you made it through our long-winded rambling last time, I'm so proud of you. We are here with Lana Ruck and Ella Bodwin talking about Lamequi in Africa. And I mean, not that there's one in Australia or South America. There seems to only be one. So specifically Kenya. And specifically Kenya, hence Kenyanthropus. We had a riveting discussion about that in uh, the... Oh, yeah! All right. Um, so <laughs> last week we talked We talked about... Uh, not last week. In the Saruti episode, we talked about like some controversies having to do with like the state at which like these lithic material like this lithic material was a tool or not with like the Saruti mastodon was it was it archaeological or was it a geofact as we defined so in this site in a similar situation ella has seen the tools in question and lana was at the conference in which this research was dropped so i'm gonna take a step back here do you guys want to you know talk about that set the scene yeah and let's see ella what what year did you see the tools We'll do it chronologically. That is a great question. I cannot remember what year, but I'm pretty sure it was before they were published. Ooh, okay, then you go first. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm pretty sure it was before they were published just because I remember coming to the museum in the National Museums of Kenya after the field season. And I think I was still an intern at the Kubi Fort Field School, which if you want to learn more about, listen to my first podcast episode where I talk about the Kubi Fort Field School. Um, but I think I was still an intern at that point, not a staff member. And I remember walking in and someone was saying, oh my God, like the oldest stone tools, they're here. Oh, like you should go meet Sonia. You should go meet her, you know. And I remember just that kind of, you know, giddy, undergrad feeling of like, oh my God, oh my God. And I went over and all of them are laid out on these tables that we have in the archaeology department and the National Museums of Kenya. And I have to say, at least, you know, in my humble opinion, they're tools. They are 110% tools. I They look really weird because of the passive percussion technique in which they were made, which is not something that I necessarily have experience with. Passive percussion, and please jump in to help clarify if I don't explain it super well, is when you basically take a big rock and you smash on an anvil to break off a flake instead of, say, holding the cobble in your own hand and hitting it with a hammer stone, right? You're using your body weight to flake it 
almost in the opposite direction direction as you would if you were hitting it with your hand. So it's a very different kind of fracture pattern that occurs on the rock than what we're traditionally used to, say, in Uldawan, which is, you know, the before this, the oldest stone tool tradition. The flakes fit together really well. They're clearly defined platforms. The one that blew my mind was one of the anvils that had like a perfect hammerstone, like crushing marks in the center. And I just remember like, I wouldn't necessarily have looked at those on the ground and thought, oh my gosh, those are tools. But once you look at them and you see how they fit back together, it it makes a lot of sense. And I think I, I made a joke Oh, I've seen these before. And the French man who was writing something down, you know, next to Sonia got very angry at me. And Sonia calmed him down and was like, it's a joke. Don't worry. So, yeah, that's my experience with the with the tools. I think it's they're super interesting and wildly different than anything I've ever seen. That's my monologue. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, yeah. I think that was a fantastic description of passive or, you know, like anvil based tool making as opposed to and doing it with your hands freehand with a hammer stone. And one thing that I do want to talk about at some point in this episode is the one of the bonobos that my advisors trained to flint nap. You know, they tried to train him to, this is Kanzi, and they tried to train him to do Oldowan style napping where you hold your core in one hand and your hammer stone in the other hand, and you're doing the work with the hammer stone. And immediately Kanzi would just get frustrated and he would just slam the cobbles on the floor, which was a tile floor. Seriously? And that's, you know, that, yeah, that, that's, that's passive percussion. You're just throwing it on a hard surface. And he got flakes like that successfully. Oh my God. I need measurements of those right now. Oh yeah, this is decades ago. Yeah, I think it would be a fantastic comparison to do. Incredible. Yeah, so this is way before the Lomekwe was discovered and they were trying to teach him Oldowan style napping. So they were trying to not allow him to do this passive technique. And so what they did is they put like that little, like those little foams that touch together that we all played with as little foam mats, you know, they like have puzzle piece edges that you stick together. Uh-huh. They put that all over the floor in Kanzi's, like the enclosure that he did his napping in. And he was, he was absolutely furious. He was like, super mad that they outsmarted him, outsmarting them. And then at nighttime, he would peel back the the foam and throw the rocks on the ground again. Like he was very persistent about this passive technique. No, okay. So that's, yeah, it's super fascinating. I think it's a, a missed opportunity that they haven't done that study yet. But for all I know, maybe they haven't each time. Yeah. A comparison. But yeah, I've seen casts of the tools and you're totally right that it's very clear that they're tools, although their size and some aspects of the the way that they look like they don't have as obvious of a bulb of percussion, for instance, but everything yes. else about them is very, it's very clear that they're tools. I just wanted to clarify that the, the, the Lomequi tools are like the size of, like I, I'm a 5'5 f- uh, five, five woman, so like I... I'm trying to think of like how wide they are. They're big. Like a flake is like the size of my hand. Yeah. So I just want to like clarify that, yeah. which is much bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good. It's like yeah. um, like a flake is like the size of a Nintendo Switch. <laughs> that is a great. <laughs> that's much bigger because they can't see my hand, and that's a much better comparison. Huge. Well, and really interestingly as well is that when they were teaching Kanzi and Panbonisha to to nap. All, all the time they would go for the bigger cores because they were easier for them yeah. to manipulate. Okay. But with because their hands are, have different morphology. Yeah, than they're totally hands, yeah. different. Yeah, absolutely. 
one thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I noted the material type in the in the article, and some of it is is phonolite. Yeah. And we have phonolite at Olduvai, and it's beautiful material. It's really pretty. It's really soft. It's almost like the closest you're going to get to chert at Olduvai, whereas the only other stuff we have is like shitty basalt, oh, wow. like okay. even quartz. Like we don't have good materials at yeah. Olduvai, but the phonolite is like really nice. Is that what the phonolite's like at Akubifora or in the Turkana region? I'm trying to remember. I think we have a huge range. Do you guys have ignimbrite? Is that a phonolite? Um, ignimbrite is like basalt adjacent. Is that like kind of green gray? Yeah, phonolite is that greenish yeah, gray. Yeah. The greenish gray with like the inclusions that kind of like sparkle a little bit. Yeah, they're like little black specks. Yes. Okay. So I have. I've always learned that that was ignimbrite, which is probably a kind of phonolite. And there's a lot of really beautiful ignimbrite, like, or yeah, phonolite that is available, but also there is really shitty, shitty ones as well. So it's a huge spectrum, but we do have okay. it available. But the basalt in, in Kubi 4 is pretty good, I would say. Okay. Cause I was wondering, I always think, cause I've only seen the cast and I always wonder if some of that like blockiness that you see in the fractures on those tools, like it's almost like they've been 3D printed and the 3D printer is like glitching every few centimeters. There's <laughs> like a big hop, right? Yeah. And in your notes, yeah. you hold it, it's almost like fractal. And that has to be due to the material type, which is why I wanted yeah. to ask about it. Like, I think on that point is a great example too. Like the thing about these tools is, so like with an ordinary flake that you might get off of an old one tool, right? You have an old, old one core and you have an old one flake. Well, it's just a core and a flake. It's not specifically old one, but you have this beautiful, generally this beautiful smooth surface on the ventral side or like the side that is connected to the core, right? It's generally smooth because that's where your energy went through the rock from the hammerstone, splitting those, you know, granules apart in this kind of wonderful shape that is super indicative to archaeologists of it being a man-made, human-made, anthropogenic tool. These are weird. Like the the ventral surface, yeah, exactly like you said. It's 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 like chunky. It's chunky. Yeah. And you can you. see it in the images. Yeah. For people who are listening, if you go and look at the figures in the nature paper that came out in 2015 or in any of the subsequent papers, it's like these are not like tiny little jumps in the surface. They're like pretty visible. I do wish that they had published 3D scans of them. And I do think there yes. actually that's a lie. There are 3D scans of them on AfricanFossils.org as well that you could look up and okay. kind of rotate. Because I feel like like that's I think why, especially to be honest, like I, I wouldn't have necessarily picked these up at all because they they remind me a lot of while the shape is not a heat fracture, but the internal structure of the of how they've pulled away from each other reminds me of heat fractures I've seen on the surface out at Kubifora. Yeah. Yeah, for like those who don't know is sometimes Kubifor is a desert. It's incredibly hot there. Sometimes rocks on the surface, bits of them will like pop off of each other because of the 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 intense heat. So they they fit back together like you would expect a flake, but they don't have a, a platform, they don't have a bulb of percussion, they don't have any of that, but they have this kind of fitting back together. But it reminds me of the of like that surface, but with all the other characteristics of flake, which confuse me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I do like <laughs> your point that we, and this is kind of one of the points of the paper as well, is that 
the Lomequi does, regardless of how old it is or the, the context there, it does, to me, as somebody who studies lit napping, it deserves its own term and like techno complex. Like For sure. it deserves to be called something different than the old one or anything after that because the morphology is so different and it's quite unique. Truly. And the size, yeah. And the size, yeah. How was it being in like the room when these got announced? Yeah, so that was my first big conference that I had been to. It was like a combo paleos SAAs and it was in San Francisco. And I was just, you know, in the room as a little plebe, you know. It was my first paleos that I had ever been to. And she gets up on the stage and I know, like I had already noticed the room was just like absolutely packed. This is kind of weird because it wasn't packed before. After the way the paleos runs, you just sit in the same room all day. It's just one session, one talk after the other. They don't have concurrent sessions going. And so it was weird that the room filled up just for that talk. And I don't know what she was originally supposed to talk about. I should have gone and looked up the abstract, but she gets up on stage and she's just like, so I was supposed to talk about something else today. But we just got news this morning that a paper that we put for Nature got accepted and it's going to be published in a few weeks. So I'm going to talk about that instead. And then I just hear cameras going off, just like DSLR, like the little shutter speed. And I just, I look to the back of the room and the whole back of the room is just like lined with journalists, like members of the press. And I was like, what? in the ever living what am I about to see? Yeah, and, and and then she delivered, you know, a very professional talk. It was just straight to the facts. Like the image she showed, the very first image of the talk was what ended up being that nature cover with the core and the refit. And she gave her talk super dry. I'm sure she asked for questions, but I don't remember anything dramatic happening about it at all. And she was just like, if you want to see, we have casts of the tools. We're going to have them at our poster. And then she pointed to the poster to get people to go and see it. And then the, the poster that it was a graduate student on their team who was lead author of the poster, but her and her partner and the one who co-authors with her were there at the table too. Their poster was right across from my poster. So I ended up just getting a lot of traffic to my oh poster. My people were like trying to be nice to the people around the Lomequi table, you know? <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was, it was really amazing. And I was just like, all like, right, all right, all right. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. It was, it was all right, all right, all right. I'll always quote Matthew McConaughey as a fellow Texan. But it was just being a graduate student and... <laughs> I'm going to punch sound effect man in the face. It was crazy to see. And I was like, I absolutely, I love this field. I want to be in this field. What I saw today was amazing. I want to, I want to do that someday. And it was really cool. I really vibe with that. Yeah, that's super awesome. And so like, I I think you guys really nailed explaining, you know, kind of the stone tools and the technology and possibly this being its own kind of stone tool tradition. But it seems like you guys both seem to agree that those are tools and those are, you know, hominin created. But the real controversy about this is the dating. So, I mean... Would one of you, whoever feels more comfortable talking about this, kind of explain how they dated it and possibly some issues and, and, and just kind of, if you can contextualize that within other stone tool traditions, like compare it to Oluan and, and whatnot. 
Yeah. You know what? I think I'm not great at dating. That's not, you know, in life and in science. And (laughs) so I'd love, sorry. So I would love if Lana, like if you would jump in, if you understand more things. So the reality, like these stone tools and why we're talking about it and why they're such a big deal is because they're dated to be 3.3 million years old. I know that we kind of briefly talked about that in the intro, but this is about 700,000 years before what was the, like used to be the oldest. So that it's a, it's an insane amount of time kind of leaping backwards. Does that, you know, that makes sense? I don't know if I, I worded Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, great. that's a great, yeah. And I feel like so much of this discovery would be more digestible for like the points that Lana and I have said that it like, they look like tools, even if it was like a hundred thousand years earlier, right? Like, I feel like yeah. it would be more digestible for the scientific audience, but the fact that it's 700,000 years like older, it, it's right. It's just way uh, out of left field. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cause there is nothing, nothing, nothing. Lomekwi. Nothing, 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 nothing. nothing, nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Oldowan as well is that there is, or one of the, you know, my favorite things about Kubifora is they're everywhere. You, you mm-hmm. cannot kick your foot for hitting a stone tool somewhere. Like, <laughs> Humans or like early hominins are so unbelievably prolific when it comes to stone tool manufacture or the byproducts of stone tool manufacture. It's everywhere. So the fact that these are the only kind of tools also is a little bit, it's a little, as the TikTok teens would say, sus. (laughs) So speaking of sus, like weren't you saying earlier that they had to like take that thing away from Kanzi because he would just slam it on the ground? I'm so interested in this. Yeah, they, they had to stop Kanzi from cheating at the task that they wanted him to do, which was freehand, old one style mapping. And, you know, if you work with apes, you realize that they're, they're going to cheat your system sooner than you're going to figure out a fix for it. But eventually they did get Kanzi <laughs> to do freehand napping. But it, yeah, exactly. Like Kanzi can passively nap cores in the exact same way that the Lomekwi hominins were doing. And we can see that also in other primate species like capuchins. There was a recent article that came out. I haven't reread it, so I don't know if it's this is fully accurate, but capuchins have been shown to passive percuss big, large cobbles, I think almost twice their body weight because they're accessing, was it salt resources? They were just breaking them in half so they could lick the salt, I think. Yeah, something about like silkrete. They were... Which is like when yeah something it's an eating disorder in humans and it's called pica where you want to eat minerals but there might be some nutritional benefit to it which is cool. So on that note, we gotta we gotta finish out this segment because some things here are a little sus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. All right. On that note, we are going to end this segment real quick, and then we're going to get back to these awesome stories that we keep telling and keep chatting with you guys. So we'll catch you in the third segment. Welcome back to episode 41 of the Life Ruins podcast. We are here with Ella Bodwin and Lana Ruck, and we are talking about Lamequi. So for the start of this segment, I really wanted to start this off by asking Lana about some of these other issues surrounding the Lamequian tools. So both Ella and Lana have given their thumbs of approval that the tools are legit. However, there's some other circumstances surrounding these tools that might make the dating or the context of the tools kind of questionable. So Lana, why don't you start us off by talking about these paleo 
Paleomagnetic dates, yes. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about those? Okay. So, yeah, in East Africa, there are a bunch of different dating techniques that are used. And most frequently, you date like volcanic ash sediments that happen from a volcano erupts, a bunch of ash spews into the air. You can date it using stable isotopes. A different method, which is what they used in this paper, combined with prior knowledge about these volcanic ash dates, is paleomagnetism which is basically where for the last several million years, the Earth's pole has shifted to where magnetic north sometimes is actually the south pole of the planet. And when we're in a normal period, like now the magnetic north is actually the north pole. But this reverses and it's at like irregular intervals. And we have a good record by like looking at the orientation of things like iron and magnetic molecules in sediments, whether they're pointed basically towards the North Pole as magnetic north or pointed towards the South Pole as magnetic north, which is a reversal. And so paleomagnetism is used a lot in East Africa because during the time of human evolution, there are a lot of these reversal events where the magnetism of the Earth shifted and was reversed. And so something about this paper is that, and and it's true of East Africa in general, is that you usually have to date a site by using this conglomeration of dates that you have from known nearby sites. You're never going to be able to excavate a full column because in order to do dating, you have to excavate into the dirt. You can't just use like surface dirt because it could be contaminated. You have to drill it with an actual saw and these sediments are like concrete hard. So it's really difficult to get these dates and it's a lot of effort to do dating. So what we usually do is we compare the sediments in their characteristics on the outcrop that we're interested in, right? You're at your site that you're interested in and then you go find sediments elsewhere where along your your whole site like study area like they used sites that were one kilometer away and half a kilometer away where you already have dates and you say like the dates that we know from half a kilometer away and another date that we have from a kilometer away we know that they are below where our excavation is and we know that other dates we know are above our excavation we know that date and they came in and they brought paleomag in because during the date sequence they were looking at there was a known reversal so they wanted to see if it was normal or if it was reversed and it ended up being reversed which means that their site was in the older part of that sequence and it's fairly complicated which is why ella and i have already talked about it's kind of hard to do work in eastern africa without a background in geology, because a lot of it ends up being about geology. And so they were able to date the site to 3.3 million years using these contexts of well-known volcanic sediment dates that they had had from prior work and the addition of paleomagnetism dates, which they collected at the site. And the, the additional thing that they did was environmental reconstruction to show that it was a woodland. The types of sediment that the, the things were in, they were embedded in a bunch of silt. And silt really only happens in a lake bed. And they were specifically in these channels of like sandy, we call them channels at Oldify, other people call them lenses. But they were in these sandy, gravelly little segments of that clay, which indicates that the lake existed prior to the deposition of the site then the lake would have receded and gotten smaller. And it was this like kind of braided stream system and floodplain of a lake 
at the time of deposition of the stone tools. And then the lake got bigger again and came back and buried those tools and kept them preserved for what they argue is 3.3 billion years. So was that a decent enough explanation? That was a great explanation. It helped me learn a lot. (laughs) Okay. No, I think that was that was great. And especially because it's and we talk about this term a lot in archaeology is that it's it's relative dating, right? It's not direct dating. Well, you know, in some other cases, you date the materials themselves. But in this case, you date the sediment beneath, you date the sediment above, and then you have like two layers of sandwich bread. And you're trying to figure out how old your meat is in between those two sandwich breads. And when your sandwich breads, like for their instance, their lower date was 3.3 and their higher date was 2.5. And that's a huge range. And when you're trying to prove that something's really old, you want to pull in an additional technique that can either help you say you're closer to the top slice of the sandwich bread or closer to the bottom slice of the sandwich bread. (laughs) And paleomagnetism can do that for you as long as you sample a reversal. If you sample the whole column and the whole sequence is always either regular or always either reversed, then you can't slice your sandwich breads across mm-hmm. from each other. They're still in the same, you know, they're still in the same context. So paleomag is really used when they're trying to take a big chunk of time and cut it in half by either being on the reversal side of it or the normal side of it. The other controversial thing, like the date's cool, fine. The fact that they had to use multiple like correlations across stratigraphy, fine. Because that's used in all of Kupifora. Yeah, well, and it's used across Oldify too. It's it's an Eastern African technique, and it it's super amazing. Yeah, it's just you also want to do. I think what I meant more too is just the fact that we you. It's not it's not weird that they did multiple dating techniques. That's not weird. Absolutely not. That's super yeah. normal, especially when we're working with materials that are this old. I think yeah. on your point, though, right, is, you know, you're trying to figure out where in this sandwich bread, is it closer to the bottom? Is it closer to the top? Mm-hmm. You know, the meat is sandwiched in the middle of these two timelines. But I think the issue with Lomaqui is, is, are the, the, the stone tools that have been found there, are they actually from in between these two pieces of sandwich bread or are they from a much younger sediment that then got washed in, got pushed in. And that's, I think this articles and like maybe the biggest debate with this particular discovery. Yeah. I just want to mention a couple of other things to put this in context as well. So Dikika is another site that is an incredibly important site when in terms of understanding our human evolution, but it's also a very controversial site. And this is the site of the oldest cut mark ever found on a bone. What that shows is that hominins were there, were accessing meat resources, were using stone tools to cut up carcasses, et cetera. Now, the problem with that site is that there were no other stone tools at that age range found near the actual cut marked bone. And then there's also a lot of debate as to whether it actually is a cut mark or whether it's abrasion from surface material or whether it's trampling. And I think that Lomequi and Dakika are very much linked in that Lomequi states there must have been stone tools prior to Dakika to have that happen, right? So it just feels very tenuous, all of these kind of connections that are being made. But the thing about Lomekwe is that they have a total of 149 artifacts found. And if you go through it, they kind of state which ones were found in situ. And in situ traditionally means 
laid down, like you said, it was laid down by the thing that created them, covered and not disturbed again. And they have been like that for all, you know, since they were created. That's kind of in situ. And that's so important in archaeology for so many reasons, because it gives us understanding of not only the times and dates, but also the relationship of tools to each other that we can understand potential other things about behavior. But they only have about 18 in the from the original paper. They say they only have 18 actually in situ artifacts. They do state that one of the in situ pieces matches a flaked piece perfectly that was down the slope. So they kind of say, well, if we found one piece in situ and we found the flake a little bit down the the slope for that piece, it must have just just recently been eroded out. So Mm -hmm. it can't have moved that far. But then if you kind of go through and and read other papers that are in rebuttal to this original nature paper, for example, Archer et al. 2020, (laughs) which is a very funny paper because they have gone through a time-lapsed video of excavations at the Lamequi site and paused it at like day one, day two, day three, and like circled all of the artifacts they think are on the surface that people are saying are in situ. They're basically saying that the original paper, the nature paper that first put all of this out is taking a very liberal definition of what Mm -hmm. in situ means. I kind of agree. I think when looking at the... I'm very confused about all of it. Yeah, you. I mean, you cannot yeah. argue with the images in that 2020 recent paper. And I, I'm not sure what journal it's yeah. in. It's a journal of human evolution, maybe. And it's called What is in Situ? That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's like, I, yeah. feel, mm-hmm. I feel for both sides here because, so for instance, the site that I've been working at pre-pandemic most recently at Olduvai, it is. It, it looks almost exactly like this site. It's a hill slope where we found it because a giant elephant bone was eroding out of the surface. And you collect that, you collect everything else on the surface, and then you dig back into the hillside. And you're kind of stuck in between a, mm-hmm. a really difficult situation because the further back you dig, the more likely you, you are to find things that associate with that layer that you were that you originally discovered on the surface, right? But the further back you go, that means you have to remove more overburden to get to that level because the whole slope is like yeah. upward, right? So at the front of the hill, you only have a few centimeters mm-hmm. to excavate. And part of this 2020 paper is like things that are one or two centimeters below the surface are not in situ. That is colluvium is what we call it at Olduvai. That's overburden and that's slope wash, Right. But once you get further and further back into the hill, you're not in that scary situation where you're one or two centimeters below the surface. You're now a foot, as Americans would say. And the further you dig back, now you're a meter underneath the surface, but you're still at the same layer and you're still digging up what you think are associated tools to that erosional surface coming out of the hill. And it, I guess I should have prefaced this all yeah. by saying this is really clear when you look at the pictures and you look at that day by day and you see day one, it's an outcrop surface. It's a hill slope. Day two, they've dug a little bit into it. Day three, they've dug a little bit into it. Year two, they've dug 
14 square meters into it. And they want to keep digging more and more back into that layer to see if they can find a bigger sample. But labor wise, you're digging through concrete and you have to remove multiple meters of sterile concrete in order to get to your level that you want to be at. And so we've been working at the site that's kind of similar to this. It's nowhere near it in date. So it's not that super important. But the the kind of context, I I kind of feel their pain of wanting to associate these high sample number of of (laughs) finds that are arguably not the strict sense of it in situ with what is back further back in the hill. Because especially with the refit, I can see how they were like, all right, this is good enough to say that these things are associated. But it's a really, it's a very tough debate. I don't think there's a very clear answer. Yeah. And and while I agree with you, right, that of course, like I, I also feel for them because, you know, I've dug through sediment like that. Yeah. You were exact. Concrete is such a great example and the blisters you get on your hands and et cetera. But with something this old and also with something this potentially important, what's frustrating to me is if you, like Archer et al. said, they went back through all those photos and they kind of identified that probably instead of the 18 in situ artifacts, if you took out all of the ones that were stretching the term in situ, they only have three, which for me, they only really have three in situ artifacts. And that is incredibly problematic, especially because so much of what we know from this time period is is very much based on sample size and especially from Kubifora because yeah. so Kubifora has a really big deflation issue and so like what deflation means basically is that multiple time periods get all compressed together onto one landscape so you could have things like i have you know you can walk around camp and i can see a obsidian shard next to an old one cobble Those two things are crazy different time periods, but they've deflated onto the surface. So for much of Kubifora, a lot of the the collections that we're getting are several thousand years of materials together, I feel. Yeah. I mean, same thing as for an old device. Yeah. Exactly. It's like when we're in a region where that happens so often to only have, I feel like you have to be strict about in situ. Yeah. And if you're not, the reality is only three is not, you know, how I think we we talked about this briefly before, you know, um, in our like pre-podcast meeting. What does this then if we say, OK, they're tools, the dating is fine, but they're only three artifacts. If we if we cut it all the way down to that, how much do those three artifacts tell us anything about anything? Right, right. Does three stone artifacts, does that make a whole new stone tool tradition that we're going to, you know, completely change and rewrite human history about? Exactly. Right. And I think that's what's so frustrating, too, about paleo, at least on like my my advisor or, well, yeah, my mentor in paleo is very much, you know, and I'm a little biased since he has actually, I think I I added one of the papers in, has found the oldest on tools now at yeah, so that's also something I want to talk about for sure, especially the fact that the oldest old one now that have been found in Ethiopia look nothing like Lomekwi. So the argument that they are an intermediate stage between nothing and Lom- and old one is a little bit iffy for me. So I'm a little biased in this, but but he is he always taught me that 
the only way in paleo to really do anything is by enormous sample sizes because we don't have writing. We don't have, yeah, you know, personal accounts. We have no other, we have nothing else data wise except for what we can collect and the measurements we can take. And I feel as though, you know, if, if someone presented a, a site paper, like if they say, we discovered a new site, look at how amazing it is. And it was old one or it was a Shulian and it only had three artifacts that wouldn't get published. Right. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. Yeah. That larger samples yeah. are drive confidence in interpretation. And I will like one thing that is really interesting about these Lomekli papers is that the original one came out in 2015, mm-hmm. the next one in 2016, nothing has come out since. And, and maybe they're yep. working on something, maybe they're, they've dug, you know, meters deep through concrete back in to find bigger samples. We don't know yet, but some of the interpretations, particularly in that second paper, the 2016 one, which I think is in philosophical transactions, biology or whatever, which is a huge high profile journal. Like they're talking about things like brain evolution in that paper and, you know, what species could it be attributed yeah. to? And like really making these really, really, really big ideas off of what they think is 20 in C2 tools, what other people have shown like frame by frame with videos, you know, like to be actually not that many yep. in C2 artifacts at all. And they're making pretty bold claims about the evolutionary narrative when there's so many other equally plausible things. And when we recorded my episode way back when, the thing that I said, when I teach Lomekwe, I teach the significance of this is that it's it exists. People are looking for more examples of it. If they don't find them, there's nothing more than a clever human ancestor figured out how to break rocks. We don't know what they use them for, but that invention didn't percolate across the society that they were embedded in, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. It was it was a one-off innovation that never caught on. And you can't tell an evolutionary story off of that. You really can't. Can I say one more thing? Because yes. And then I promise I'll I'll stop. Okay. This is my my hot take, hot take Wednesday. I think we haven't touched upon it not being a human ancestor, that it's it's some Ooh. other primate that has created these things. Since you said that like Kanzi. Kanzi was doing Kanzi that passive profession. We've seen yeah, Capuchins do passive yeah. profession. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember when Sonia came and talked at work, Rick Potts stood up and asked a question, you know, oh, like, you know how he, he said that he'd seen baboons will sometimes just pick up little rocks and hit them together because they like the noise. Not, you know, for no other reason than that. So, yeah, I feel like there's a so the really, really cool thing about which I think is way cooler than the possibility of it being a one-off human ancestor is like, th- this is evidence of other non, non-human, non yeah. non-hum- like no- primates, yeah. early primates doing interesting things in interacting with their environment, especially when we don't have any sort of the, the traditional things that we would associate with primate tool use, you know, doesn't preserve sticks, et cetera. Absolutely. Like, I think these are so cool, especially if potentially they were from other primates. Like, oh, so cool. Okay. That would be my favorite. I, I hope I hope it's a, a little baboon banging these things together. 
I think that's just as plausible as all the other theories. Like that is as scientifically sound. It's exactly likely. All we know is that it was aliens. Yeah, it, all we know is that it wasn't aliens. That's for freaking sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't aliens. That has been episode 41 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Ella and Lana, thank you guys so much for coming on our show today. We really appreciate it. This has been a fascinating topic. I mean, we just, you guys were off leash the entire time, just totally taken over this podcast. It was absolutely fascinating. Ella, could you please drop your handles so our listeners can get a hold of you? Yeah. So my Twitter is at Ella underscore Bodwin and my Instagram is at simple homo slapian. And there you'll find a link tree to link to my other podcast with you guys and some science communication writing I have done as well as uh, Smithsonian webinars that you can all watch. Excellent. And what about you, Ms. Ruck? How can our listeners follow you or get a hold of your research? Pause. You can also find dank memes on Ella's social media. She forgot to mention that. It's important. Oh, do my dank memes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Lana Ruck. And I'm on Instagram, but not super active and not super sciencey. But you can watch me post pictures of me and Carlton hiking at Lana Lately on Instagram. Excellent. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right. So listeners, this isn't from my father. This is from the Internet. Yeah, I, I have a good joke about stone tools, but it's uh, it's a bit of an older one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I actually I love, love that, that one. one. Yeah, that, I one like I like. that. Okay. that one's great. <laughs> good job. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it, of course. Right now, open a new CQ checking account and we'll give you $250 to spend however you like. Upgrade those headphones, splurge on concert tickets, or maybe upgrade to ad-free streaming. The choice is yours. And extra cash isn't all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. All with CQ. Visit CQMD.org today. That's S-E-C-U-M-D.org today.